Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill it out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for joining with us today. I almost coughed right in the middle of that. I have allergies so badly this time of year in uh, Arizona. And so if I'm, if I'm coughing or, or, or trying to suppress coughs, or sneezing throughout the, the sermon, I apologize, just the time of the year here. You know, folks here that Arizona is supposed to be an allergy-free state. I moved here 10 years ago and, and just realized I had really bad allergies, coughing for weeks at a time. And I took an allergy test and uh, the nurse called and said, well, there are these three plants in Arizona that you're not allergic to. Every other plant in Arizona, you are absolutely allergic to and I, I can feel it. So again, I apologize if I cough or if I'm sneezing uh, my way through the sermon today. But today is week two of our new series, The Family Tree, The Denominations of Christianity. And what we're doing is we're looking back over the centuries at people who have wanted to follow Jesus Christ and realizing that many of the same questions and doubts we have, the, the, the struggles, the very human uh, struggles that we face, that other people have faced them in the past, even if we weren't aware of it. And for many of us, you know, we're in a place in our spiritual lives where we may feel stuck. We're wondering, can I be a Christian at times, the way that Christianity is used in the United States and for, for weird political purposes and what that can mean. We can be embarrassed by that. Or we have intellectual questions that we just don't have answers to. And it can be incredibly liberating and, and really revolutionary to learn that there may have been people hundreds of years ago on the other side of the planet who had these same questions, these same doubts, these same struggles. And, and so in this series, it may be that the, the thing that, that opens the next door in your spiritual life is what we're learning about the, the various branches of the Jesus movement over the centuries. And and here are the sermon titles. Last week we talked about Catholics. Today we're talking about Orthodox Christians. Next week, which is Mother's Day, we're talking about Anglicans and Methodists. May 15th, Lutherans and Presbyterians. May 22nd, Baptists, Anabaptists, and Pentecostals. And May 29th, non-denominational Christians, including churches like The Well, who want to be a place where uh, we can be honest about our questions and doubts and remove those as a barrier or just be able to live with them in peace and harmony. As we talked about in the last series when we read Brian McLaren's book, 
uh, faith after doubt. And he talked about getting to a place of harmony in our lives. So this is a graph of all the Christians in the world, over 2 billion Christians. And here's how the, the percentages break down for each denomination. You can see Catholics are a little over half of all Christians in the United States. And then or sorry, in the world. And then if Pentecostals were one denomination, they would be the second largest group of Christians. But I want you to notice today, as we talk about Orthodox Christians, about 250 million people in the world who are Orthodox. And, and we're going to talk about them today. And like every week, uh, the sermon's going to be divided into three chunks. First, basic facts and history about the denomination we're looking at. And then the major tenets of their faith, the distinctives, what makes them who they are. And then we're going to ask, what can we learn? How can we grow in our spiritual lives from this branch of Christianity? We are not looking to critique other branches of Christianity. I saw a Facebook ad yesterday from a megachurch, an evangelical megachurch of thousands of people here in this area. And they're doing a series similar to this. Only every week they're just critiquing the other group and, and saying why we're, they're the right ones and everybody else is wrong. And I just thought, you know, here in the 21st century and the division in our world, I just don't think we have time for that. And so we're not looking to critique other expressions of faith. Of course, we could. And of course, they could critique us. It could go both ways. But we don't need to do that in this series. What we're doing is we're learning about them and then we're asking, how can I grow? How can I benefit? How could maybe their view be a corrective for me, balance, and, and actually help me? How could it be something, like we said earlier, where I could just fling the door open in, in the next step for us in our spiritual lives? And, and so that's where uh, we're headed in this series. Now, uh, the Orthodox Church is, is um, divided into many different uh, expressions of orthodoxy. There's the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's the Greek Orthodox Church, there's the Russian Orthodox Church. If you're paying attention to the news, many Christian leaders around the world are condemning the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church right now because he supported Putin in this war against Ukraine. Ukrainians are Orthodox Christians. Russians are Orthodox Christians, by and large. Those who, those who uh, are self-professing Christians, they're part of those churches. And, and so... It's easiest to understand the Orthodox Church uh, like this. Between 300 and 400 AD, the Roman Empire split in two and became the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. And that's what we mean by Eastern culture and Western culture. And it's still what we mean by Western Europe and Eastern Europe today. So the Orthodox Church is found primarily in Eastern Europe and Russia. And of course, in, in the United States and, and the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant churches represent Western Christianity by and large, while the Orthodox Church represents Eastern Christianity. There has never been truly one unified church on earth, but uh, we are now Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. And uh, they were united at one point in the past until 1054 AD when what's called the Great Schism. There was a separate, uh, separation between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, and that division grew, uh, or that division had grown up into that point because of the fall of the Roman Empire and, 
and there were cultural differences. The Roman church spoke Latin and the Eastern church spoke Greek, but there are other differences in, in faith. And in the 11th century, the Roman Catholic church mandated the celibacy of priests and the Eastern churches just weren't willing to go along with that. Uh, Greek Orthodox uh, priests can be married or Orthodox priests can be married. And then uh, there was the split in 1054. And then in 1517, the Protestant Reformation took place, leading to many new denominations. And if you picture the, the family tree laying on its side, it might look like this. And you can see that the Protestant branches of Christianity all come from the Catholic Church. And then you see there in the Great Schism in 1054, the Orthodox Church branching out there at the bottom. And you can see how Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists and everybody else come from the Catholic Church or Western Christianity. So if you grew up Protestant or Catholic, you, you have been a part of Western Christianity. And Eastern Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, is foreign to many of us, as we will see here in the next few minutes. And it can be a breath of fresh air. It can be refreshingly different to learn about Eastern Christianity. Again, in that last series, uh, based on Brian McLaren's book, Brian wrote about how being exposed to Eastern Orthodox Christianity really was an, a, a pivotal moment in his spiritual life where he realized, wait a second, there's this tradition of 250 million Christians that I was not aware of, and, and this, is, this is opening up new doors for me. And I, I'm realizing some of the questions I've been asking, they were asking a long time ago. And I'm not alone, and, and many of us will probably have an experience like that today. So first of all, let's look at some history and facts about the Orthodox Church, and we'll fly through these and then get to the distinctives and how we can grow in our spiritual lives from learning about orthodoxy. So first of all, orthodox means right belief and right practice. The Orthodox Church believes that they most accurately represent the beliefs of, and worship of ancient Christianity. Um, and while Catholics trace their history back to the Apostle Peter, the Orthodox trace their history back to the Apostle Peter and claim uh, that their tradition best uh, preserves ancient Christianity. Uh, the early church leaders are often re referred to as the early church fathers or the apostolic fathers. These were men. Uh, they're also called the patristics. You hear uh, patriarchy. You, you hear fathers there. They're men who were leaders in the early church, and their, their writings uh, are the basis of, of Christianity in general. But the Orthodox seem to uh, value the early church fathers very highly, and, and the area, so the era of the early church fathers is considered to be from about 100 A.D. to 451 A.D. when the Council of Chalcedon took place, and then after the Council of Chalcedon, the separation between the Eastern Church and the Western Church began before it culminated in the Great Schism of 1054. Uh, the Orthodox Church is led by the Patriarch of Constantinople, although he does not have nearly as much authority as the Pope. The Orthodox Church is, is far more uh, democratic and less hierarchical than the Catholic Church. Um, they are, uh, those churches are autonomous, actually, but the Patriarch of Constantinople is seen as the first among equals in leaders in the Orthodox Church. We talked about the Great Schism, already uh, just a little bit more about that um, in 1054 those divisions between the eastern and western church 
had grown to the extent that it was impossible to hold, hold it together as one church any longer. Uh, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church and the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated each other. You know that the relationship is always going poorly when that happens. And then less than 50 years later, the Crusades began. So as Muslim armies invaded the Holy Land, Palestine and, and the churches of the, of the East and West joined in, in battle against uh, Muslim crusaders. And, and since the Middle Ages, the Orthodox Church has been in an almost continual battle with Islam. Muhammad was born in 570 AD and Islam spread quickly uh, in countries that were formerly only Orthodox Christian. And by four, uh, sorry, in 1453, Constantinople, uh, Constantinople was conquered by the Muslim Ottoman Empire and renamed Istanbul. So Istanbul was Constantinople, as we know from the song. And even now there is some question as to whether the Orthodox Church can even survive in Istanbul, where it was you know, formally headquartered uh, there in, in Constantinople and in uh, there is a slow return to unity between Catholics and Orthodox Christians in 1965. Uh, the Pope and Patriarch formally removed one another's excommunications. That was seen as a, a sign of progress after 900 years. So we'll, we'll take the progress even if it's slow. But what are some distinctives of Orthodox Christianity? I think over the next uh, decades, Western Christianity, especially here in America, uh, is going to be increasingly influenced by Orthodox Christianity. It's new to most Americans and Western Christians, but I think Orthodoxy will serve as a corrective in some way. It's, America is already being influenced by Eastern thought, such as Hinduism and so on. Think of the 1960s and the Beatles. And, 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 and so Eastern Christianity, I think, is beginning to influence Western Christianity. So here are just a few distinctives of the Orthodox Church. First of all, the Orthodox appreciate beauty in worship and architecture. Now, of course, you'll see an appreciation for beauty in Catholic churches and in pageantry and, and worship that appeals to the five senses. But I would say that the Orthodox have an appreciation for beauty even beyond uh, Catholicism. So I visited an Orthodox a worship service uh, for a worship class in college. And it was a completely new experience to me. I had no familiarity with what would happen, and it was a cool experience. I was struck with how unfamiliar I was, how foreign it was to me. I mean, that was my first observation. This is just different. How was I not aware of this? But uh, it caused me to question my assumptions. Like, wait a second, if I wasn't aware of this, what else am I not aware of? So it was, it was, a, it was a, an educational experience for me that made me hungry to learn more about the, the branches of the Jesus movement. So the altars of Orthodox churches are beautiful and ornate, and, and you know when you're in an Orthodox church by the altar alone. The architecture has meaning. The design of the building and the artwork inside of it communicates meaning. Every detail is considered, and the design is intentional. In American non-denominational churches, a lot of times we're used to a big box church building that is sparsely decorated. A lot of us Protestants, we downplay art and beauty in worship. But an Orthodox church is, is very ornate. It's, it's, a, it's designed to transport the worshiper to heaven. 
It's meant to engage the intellect and the emotions and promote joy and peace. It's like even the building itself is a canvas. And, and uh, every part of that canvas communicates beauty and they appreciate beauty and believe that beauty is important to life. The Orthodox also use icons in worship. Icons are pictures that assist the worshiper to focus on the meaning of something. So here are some Orthodox icons. They're orth uh, icons of Jesus, the apostles, and others. They're icons that can represent biblical stories and teach a lesson. Uh, the Orthodox do not worship icons. Icons assist in worship. They allow the worshiper to focus on the meaning of the icon. So worshipers honor the person the icon represents, but they don't worship icons, but they are valuable and meaningful. Um, it's not just the architecture that is meant to be artful and communicate beauty, but uh, Orthodox uh, liturgy is, is meant to uh, communicate beauty and and almost the entire service is sung. The liturgy is chanted, and the chanting is a dialogue between the clergy and the people. It's led by a cantor or a choir who sings the liturgy throughout the service, and rarely are words spoken. I just have this quick video to give us an example of Orthodox liturgy. Let's watch. Help us, save us, have mercy on us, and keep us, O God, by thy grace. And remembering our most holy, pure, blessed, and glorious Lady, the Philcopus, and ever Virgin Mary, with all the saints, let us commit ourselves and one another in our whole life. Unto Christ our God. Oti prepi si passa dox timi proskinis isto batrike to io ke to io pneu matininke ai ke isto se ona stone onon. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and everything within me, bless his holy name. Through the intercessions of the Theotokos, Savior, save us. The sacraments of communion and baptism, similar to Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians believe that the body and blood of Christ really is present in the communion elements of bread and wine. Uh, they believe that the elements really do become the body and blood of Christ in essence. Um, the Orthodox Church baptizes infants by immersion, which is, is an interesting uh, way of baptizing infants. They have a little tub, and, and they actually dunk the infant quickly. And, uh, and, and then, of course, they immediately pull the baby back up. But it's just an interesting distinctive uh, of baptizing infants by immersion. And then, as we said earlier, Orthodox priests are permitted to be married. Most priests are married. Those who are not are usually monks, and that was one of the reasons for the Great Schism in 1054. Now, this next, next distinctive uh, is somewhere we're going to park for a moment, because I find that there's a particular uh, part of Orthodox theology pertaining to salvation and the afterlife that has been incredibly liberating to Protestants and Catholics who have been struggling with their faith and asking questions and they feel alone and maybe they're going through a crisis of faith and, 
and they, they even have difficult relationships with family members because maybe you've asked questions that they haven't asked and and sometimes you wonder if you should just chuck the whole thing and not even call yourself a Christian anymore because you just don't know where all of this is going to go and, and, and what's worth holding on to and what's not. And I found that, that the orthodox view of salvation and the afterlife can be revolutionary to those of us who are struggling and, and asking questions. So I want to park here for a moment. So first of all, um, Orthodox Christians view salvation as theosis, which is union with God, uh, that we partake in God's nature. We don't become divine ourselves, but we share in God's nature that we can experience communion with God. And we're going to take communion here together at the, uh, at the end of the service. But salvation is union with God. And the Orthodox Church holds a more therapeutic view of salvation than many of us are used to. In Western Christianity, Catholics and Protestants, we tend to have a legal view of salvation. We tend to see salvation in terms of sin and guilt and penalty and punishment, legal terms. We've done something wrong and now we have the penalty. That tends to be a, a more Western view of salvation. Eastern Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, has, generally speaking, a more therapeutic view of salvation. And so in Western Christianity, if you do something wrong, you have violated God's law, you've sinned, and you need forgiveness and pardon uh, so you don't have to face a penalty. It's a legal conception. In Orthodox Christianity, if you do something wrong, the view would be more that we have a sickness and we need healing. Now, you can easily understand why that would be a welcome corrective to many of, the, many of us who have been raised in Western Christianity, who tend to see salvation in, in, in legal terms. It, it's not hard to understand why it would be attractive to balance that or really lean into having a more therapeutic view of salvation. In a book called Sin and Salvation, an Orthodox Understanding of Redemption, Professor Harry Busalis writes, According to Orthodox teaching, salvation is therapeutic renewal, regeneration, and resurrection in Christ. Salvation is the acquisition of grace of the Holy Spirit. To be saved is to be sanctified and participate in the divine, or the divine life of God. So instead of just legal terms of, of sin and guilt and penalty, the Orthodox have an understanding of salvation as healing and union with God. Now, Catholics and Protestants also have healing metaphors in salvation. The Orthodox also have legal terms. But generally speaking, the emphasis is different. And you can see why that's an important distinctive that would benefit many of us. And then there is a drastically and, and probably refreshingly different view of the afterlife held by Orthodox Christians in contrast with, with that held by many of us in Western Christianity. A few years ago, uh, a, a pastor at the time and an author and speaker named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. Now, if you know Rob Bell's story, or maybe you know, you're old enough to remember when, when Love Wins came out, uh, Rob had grown up in an evangelical Christian tradition, but he was clearly somebody who was on a theological and spiritual journey. 
and, and would kind of poke and prod, but, but a great writer and speaker and would share his journey and develop the following. And then after a few books, he released Love Wins. And there was, there was something about his book, Love Wins, that just uh, ignited this firestorm of controversy among more evangelical and fundamentalist Christians who essentially kicked him out. There was a prominent uh, evangelical pastor who tweeted, Farewell, Rob Bell. When, when, when Love Wins was released, and some people called Rob Bell a heretic. Um, they said he's a universalist, meaning that all people are eventually saved and there is no hell. There are some Christians who believe that, and that's fine. There are some who, most who don't, but, but that was meant to be an accusation against him. And Love Wins uh, painted a picture of the afterlife and, and heaven and hell that is not as hellfire and brimstone as what many evangelicals and fundamentalist Christians hold on to. And that was the thing that, that essentially got Rob kicked out of those circles for good. Uh, Rob didn't say he was a universalist. Uh, Rob didn't say there's no hell. It's just that he acknowledge that there has been a wideness in views of the afterlife throughout the history of Christianity. But just that acknowledgement was enough that he was booted from the evangelical camp that, that he had grown up in. Now, Love Wins was essentially an orthodox view of the afterlife and probably largely based on a book called Surprised by Hope by an Anglican theologian named N.T. Wright, who has, who has um, embraced some orthodox views of the afterlife and allowed them to be a corrective to us Western Christians. And so this book, Love Wins, that got Rob kicked out of the bar is the view held by 250 million Christians, a, a quarter of the Christians in the world. It was just... Uh, it was eye-opening to me to realize, wow, like there are little slivers of American Christianity who are so uh, protective of their turf that they will essentially excommunicate somebody who, who teaches a view of the afterlife that is held by far more Christians than their little sliver. So it's kind of like the, the mouse feeling really skittish laying next to the, ele the elephant and really defensive and lashing out. And it was just interesting to see how, how Rob's book was essentially an orthodox view of the afterlife. So the, orthodo the orthodox believe that even after death, a person can still choose to receive God's saving grace. Uh, they believe that uh, the person has that choice until the final judgment takes place at some point in the future. And uh, there isn't just one view in the Orthodox Church, but this is the most common view. The Orthodox tend to uh, see heaven and hell not as places, but as states of existence. And by the way, uh, the Catholic Church will say the same thing. They just mean some different things, but... Uh, the Orthodox would say that heaven and hell begin now on earth, and that experience continues after our death. And then there's a, a period of time after our death, death until the final judgment 
when we're able to choose uh, something different. And, and this is what's really so revolutionary probably to, to Western Christians about the Orthodox view that hell is not a separate place from heaven, but that all people in the afterlife, even, even people who rejected God, are not separated from God's presence, that there is nowhere we could go where we would be separated from God's presence. But to people who want to be in God's presence, that experience is heaven. And for people who do not want to be in God's presence, that experience is hell. And it's based entirely on the person's choice. Do they want to embrace God's love and light? Well, if so, that experience of God is heaven. For those who do not want to embrace God's, God's love and light, for them, by their choice, that experience is hell. And that view is just mind-blowing to many of us as Western Christians. That is a completely foreign conception of the afterlife. To the extent that a book like Love Wins, which presented basically the orthodox view of salvation and hell, it ignited a controversy in the more evangelical Christian world in America. But that Anglican theologian N.T. Wright, who wrote a book called Surprised by, by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church, is, is at least informed by an orthodox view of salvation and in and, and heaven and hell. And, and he writes in Surprised by Hope that a lot of us as American Christians, we have this view of the afterlife where, where heaven and hell are places and it's all about where we go when we die. So salvation isn't so much about here and how we live, but it's all about some other place, some other time. And we're going to go to a place for all of eternity. And heaven is great. And heaven is a, or hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, fiery torment, torture. And, and those people are separated from God and will be tortured forever. And in the book, N.T. Wright says essentially that that the family tree throughout the, the centuries of Christianity largely has conceived uh, as, as heaven and hell beginning now, salvation begins now. It's not just about some other place at some other time. And that instead of evacuating earth and going to heaven, the point of salvation is that God would come here and that heaven would begin here and then extend out into eternity. And you see this in a few scripture passages. So Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor the, for the old order of things has passed away. Heaven comes down. Heaven is not some place we go up to for eternity, but heaven comes down. That's from the book of Revelation. And then Matthew chapter 6, verses 9-10, through 10, this is the Lord's Prayer. This is the way Jesus teaches us to pray, and you probably know this by heart. 
Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come so that your will be, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So not that we're going to go up there somewhere, but we want God's kingdom to come down. That's how we're supposed to pray as Christians. And of course, we, we want to live the way we pray. We want to live as an answer to our own prayers. And so it's not that, that we want to evacuate and go somewhere else. We want to bring heaven to earth. And then finally, regarding the, the orthodox view of heaven and hell and God's presence being everywhere, even in the afterlife, the Orthodox would cite Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, under the earth, the underworld, in, in the conception of the Hebrew Bible, you are there. So the, the view of the afterlife in N.T. Wright's surprise by hope has more in common with Orthodox Christianity than it does with Dante's Inferno. And so... There's a video where the author, N.T. Wright, uh, describes the difference between a Western view of the afterlife and, and hell and a, an Orthodox view. And I, I, think it's, I think it's incredibly eye-opening, especially if you're somebody who struggles with this question. You know, would God consign people to an etern eternal fiery torment? And, and is that who God is? And if you struggle with that question, and that's a big deal in your spiritual life, which it has been for me and for many of us, this video could be helpful. It's about three minutes long. Here, let's watch N.T. Wright on the orthodox view of the afterlife. The word hell has had a checkered career in the history of the church, and it wasn't hugely important in the early days. It was important, but not nearly as important as it became in the Middle Ages. And in the Middle Ages, you get this polarization of heaven over here and hell over there, and you've got to go to one place or the other eventually. So you have the Sistine Chapel um, with that great thing behind the altar, this enormous great judgment scene with the, the souls going off in these different directions. Very interestingly, I was sitting in the Sistine Chapel just a few weeks ago. I was sitting for a service, and I was sitting next to a Greek Orthodox Archimandrite who said to me, looking at the pictures of Jesus on one wall, he said, these I can understand. And the pictures of Moses on the other wall, he said, those I can understand. Then he pointed at the end wall, the judgment. He said, that I cannot understand. He said, that's how you in the West have talked about judgment and heaven and hell. He said, we have never done it that way because the Bible doesn't do it that way. I thought, whoops. I think he's right, actually. And whether you're Catholic or Protestant, that scenario which is etched into the consciousness of Western Christianity really has to be shaken about a bit. Because if heaven and earth are to join together, it's not a matter of leaving earth and going to heaven. It's heaven and earth being joined together. So in Orthodox Christianity, even heaven and hell are integrated. That however a person experiences God's presence by their own choice, decides whether their experience is heaven or hell in the afterlife, all the way up to the final judgment. It's just revolutionary for those of us who have struggled with, with these questions. So how can we grow spiritually, uh, spiritually from uh, Orthodox Christianity? Well, I think it comes directly out of the distinctives that, that we've talked about here this morning. So when I think of, of the Orthodox appreciation for beauty, in worship. Of course, I would say the same thing about the Catholic Church, but the Orthodox, even more so, tend to embrace beauty and, and, and brightness and light and ornate uh, art in 
worship. And for those of us who have come from especially Protestant traditions, Protestant worship tends to be sparse and, and black and white and rigid and, and, and even uh, you know, iconoclastic, like taking down icons and, and getting rid of anything that is beautiful. It's common in, in Protestant Christians in America to complain about money being spent on the church building. Now, we also live in a time when televangelists are, are, steal money from people and live lav- lavish lifestyles. And, and at the same time, there is this root in Protestant Christianity that kind of complains about anything that is um, beautiful or could be seen as overdone. Whereas, at the same time, there are a lot of Protestants who would probably go to a beautiful cathedral or a, a, an Orthodox place of worship and appreciate the beauty. So we, we, we kind of maybe aren't sure what we think about beauty in worship as, as Protestants, but to me, I think I can grow spiritually from appreciating beauty, whether it's beauty in nature or whether it's, it's art like icons that communicate meaning and stories or it's or, in an ornate altar in an Orthodox worship service like I experienced in college, there's something about speaking to the five senses. It's, it's not just the intellect, but being emotionally moved by beauty. Uh, of course, we've had stained glass windows for centuries in Western Christianity, and now the new stained glass windows are, are you know, projection and, and lighting and you know, ambient lighting and, and, and how the projector screen at the well you know, tells stories, essentially, the way that a stained glass window would in and a Catholic church, but I just think there's something to be said for my own spiritual life and the appreciation of beauty and allowing myself to be moved by art that communicates a spiritual meaning. And then when we talk about a view of salvation that is more therapeutic than legal, I mean, my goodness, it's, you know, this is just too easy for me in a sermon to talk about how we can grow spiritually from that kind of a view of salvation, there are so many of us who, you know, we, we, we live with Catholic guilt or Protestant guilt or no, no expression of Christianity has a corner on guilt in the market. Like there are so many of us who have guilt complexes and we feel shame. Maybe like me, you grew up in purity culture and, and, and you feel shame connected to your sexuality or, or you just, you just uh, conceive of yourself as as unworthy because those are the religious messages that you've received messages of 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 guilt and shame and 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 penalty and and the orthodox view of salvation can be such a welcome corrective to see salvation more in therapeutic terms that that maybe i de-emphasize being guilty and, need, and needing to pay a penalty, but instead I realize that we're all sick in some ways, and we're all on a journey towards healing and union with God, theosis, and to see salvation in terms of healing, I mean, that is, that is a, a welcome uh, change of view for many of us. 
in our spiritual lives. And then when it comes to these questions that we have about the afterlife, so many of us, you know, how could God consign people to an eternal fiery conscious torment in hell? And maybe questions like that have been the barrier for you in your spiritual life. You think, I don't know if I could even remain a Christian if that's who God is, if that's what Christians have to believe. And, and that's the only way there is. See, a lot of us have been raised to think that's just the only way. And here we have 250 millions, uh, million uh, people around the world, uh, 25% of Christians in the world who have a completely different view of that. That heaven and hell are not places and they're not even, they're not even separate but, but they're just states of being in God's presence and however we choose to respond to God's presence makes it heaven or hell based on whether we want God's presence or not. It's just a drastically different view. And if you're somebody who struggle with those questions and maybe you've, you've faced the false dichotomy, well, it's either that I, I embrace this eternal fiery conscious torment or I have to be an atheist. Well, Actually, no, there are a lot of options in between those things. Completely different views of salvation in the afterlife. So that's Orthodox Christianity. Of course, it's not exhaustive. We don't have time to cover all those things. But, but those are just a few things. And I hope that studying Orthodox Christianity has been a, a corrective or eye-opening or refreshing to you. We're going to take communion now, and if you'd like to participate in communion with us, just have a beverage and a piece of bread. It doesn't have to be fancy. I have a piece of regular bread and uh, something to drink. And as we take communion together today, we're reminded that we are a part of the family tree, that, that we are not just isolated individuals, but we are a part of this, this community. We, we hear communion and, and community and the similarities and those words. We're a part of this community, not only now, but throughout the centuries of all people who have, who have wanted to follow Jesus and, and be a part of you know, the body of Christ. And so uh, let's, let's remember that we're all part of the same family tree as we take communion today. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples. And he picked up the bread and he thanked God for it. And then he broke it. And he said, this is my body. As often as you eat it, remember me. So let's eat the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup and he thanked God for it. And he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for uh, being able to talk about the views of, of 250 million Christians around the world. Over a quarter of all the Christians in the world that are foreign to many of us as American Christians who have been exposed to only legal metaphors of salvation and, and kind of a stark, sparse view of faith. Um, and, and we're intrigued by beauty that moves us. We feel the need for that. And a view of salvation that, that is more therapeutic and healing than legal. And then, and then a view of the afterlife that opens up new doors for some of us who thought the only option was to chuck our faith altogether because we just can't go along with Dante's Inferno. And God, there's so much more than that in the family tree of Christianity. And we thank you that we get to learn about this branch of our family tree. In Jesus' name, amen.